politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, a great nation where one of the great privileges we enjoy in this republic is the privilege of changing our minds. And sometimes we do that as a nation, Some we, sometimes we do that as a group, even as a political party, uh, and sometimes we do that as individuals. And uh, Ruben Navarrete, who is consistently one of the most provocative and substantive and enlightening columnists in the country, he is uh, syndicated worldwide through the Washington Post Writers Group. He uh, is also featured in the Daily Beast, as his column is, I was for affirmative action, but now I think it should go away. And this is uh, an issue on President's Day. Uh, it, it goes to an issue of basic fairness in the United States of America. Uh, Ruben, congratulations on the column. Happy President's Day to you. And what a fascinating and provocative piece. Michael, thank you so much for having me on again, my friend. Great to be back with you, and thanks for the kind words about about my work. It was an interesting piece to work my way through. Clearly, I've been now intimately acquainted with affirmative action for, gosh, almost 40 years since I was a high school senior. And uh, I applied to a bunch of schools, including your alma mater, Yale, and mine, Harvard, and Stanford, and Berkeley, and Princeton. Got into everything and was told by my dear white classmates and friends that the only reason I got in was because I was Mexican. Uh-huh. And you, 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 list in the, you, <laughs> you list in your piece, one of the things that's fascinating about this is the autobiographical yeah. aspects. You talk about your father's situation, sure. about his dream of being a police officer at a time when it was very hard for a Mexican-American to, to get that kind of job. Uh, but but you also list your qualifications for getting into all those Ivy League schools. But can I ask you a right. question? Because this is not in your sure. piece. How how young were you when you first thought, yeah, I, I want to apply to Harvard and Yale and Stanford, yeah. and that's something that I want to do? When did that first occur to you? It happened late in the game for me. When I was a sophomore in high school, I got a a piece of email, an email from, or back then we didn't have email, it was a letter. <laughs> it was a letter from a young woman who was from Brownsville, Texas. Her name was Nelda Barron. I still remember this. She had gone, she was at Yale. Uh, she was in the business of recruiting other Mexican-Americans to take a look at Yale. And so she sent me an email, or there we go again, a letter. And I, uh, I thought by myself, well, there are these schools called the Ivy League. I just discovered them, started reading about them, researching them. And up to that point, uh, Michael, I knew I was going to go to college, but I was very content to go to a great school like UC Berkeley, and I would have been happy there. But once I discovered the East Coast, uh, I got it in my mind to go. Wow. And so that was th through a letter that it, it came into your mind. Yeah. Had, had people gone to college at all before in your family? They had. My dad graduated from, uh, he got a Bachelor's of Science in Criminology from Fresno State, Cal State University of Fresno, which is a wonderful school that I love dearly, and it's our hometown university. It gave me my first paying job out of college as an instructor there. I, I have been a student there as a visiting student uh, during my college years. I love the place. My dad was a graduate of Fresno State, and my thinking was, 
I'm going to apply to these five very selective schools, and if I don't get in, no big deal. I'll go to Fresno State. It's a great place. Uh, so, yeah, my dad had been down that road. He went. He traveled differently, Michael, because, you know, he went into the Army. He was drafted in the 60s. In 64, he was a cop. He was working nights and going to school and, and you know, trying to juggle it all. So it was a much different experience than mine. Wow. And uh, which which comes out in your piece. So you uh, basically never liked the idea that people would take a turn around and you got all A's and A pluses in high school. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you did really? <laughs> super yeah. on the you did super on test scores and all of that. You weren't admitted yeah. to Harvard just because you were Mexican. You were admitted to Harvard because you worked hard and uh, yeah. you you had obviously more than qualified. So, uh, but you still supported the idea of affirmative action, even though yeah. it had led people to undervalue your achievement. Yes. So when I was an undergraduate, I just took a, core, uh, a study group uh, session over at the Kennedy School of Government, and the topic was, um, was I think it was race-related. The speaker one day was Alan Dershowitz. Somebody asked the law ah, professor. He was on the show uh, Friday. No kidding. So someone asked, uh, I've known him for a good long time, and somebody asked him, you know, about affirmative action, and he did a very wise thing, Michael. He uh, broke it down and said, well, it really depends on how you define affirmative action. If it's putting ads in newspapers uh, about job openings at police and fire departments that African Americans are going to read those newspapers, then I'm all for it. Uh, if it means hard, rigid racial preferences, then I'm against it. And I think that's the best way to answer it, because what Nelda Baran did for me was a form of affirmative action. She was a Mexican-American. She reached out to other Mexican-Americans uh, who she identified through our PSAT scores, and she introduced me to the Ivy League. Now, that is a perfectly harmless thing to do. I, 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 I would support it. But when we get down that road and it's clumsily practiced, uh, as a more rigid racial preference, then we end up with real problems. And that, that is also what the Supreme Court, as you know, Michael, has, uh, because of your legal training, has, has said over time, you can take race into account as one of various factors, but there are certain rules of the road you had to adhere to, and sometimes universities uh, go afoul of the rules and they get called on it. Yeah, and uh, you you go into some of these statistics. The cases that are coming up with the court, and the court very likely yeah. will combine the two of them. Uh, one involves the University of North right. Carolina, which is a very successful uh, selective state school, and one of them involves Harvard. And right. uh, I think it's widely expected that uh, with the changes in the Supreme Court that we are there's going to be some limitation put on the extent to which race can be taken into account, don't you think? Uh, I do think so, and there's lots of people who think that this is the end of affirmative action. I've talked to um, my college roommate on my podcast last week. He teaches now at Howard University, and he said as an African-American, he's pretty sure that this is the end of the road for affirmative action, which came into, to, as you know, came into uh, being in 1961 over... Um, 40 years ago, when John F. Kennedy issued an executive order uh, instructing government contractors to take, quote, affirmative action to ensure that um, African-American contractors at least had a fair shot at bidding. You can imagine 1961, that was really necessary because African-American contractors, police officers and the like, to the degree that there were any at all, they were not getting a fair shake. They were not. 
And so I, I argue in my piece that it certainly had a time and place. I don't think that time and place is now. But certainly it's to get my father into police departments in the 1970s, given what we know about how bad discrimination was in, in not that long ago, you know, 60, 70 years ago, uh, it was perfectly reasonable. Michael, there's one important point here I want to make, and that is there are a lot of Latinos out there, African-Americans out there like me, who are willing to say goodbye to affirmative action because we think it hurts its intended beneficiaries in a variety of ways, uh, lowering standards, stigmatizing beneficiaries, uh, masking real educational inequality at the K-12 through level. But the problem we've had for the last 30 years is I find very dishonest and self-serving, disingenuous, the arguments uh, from white men, whether those white men are radio talk show hosts or TV cable hosts or, or columnists like me, and they want to somehow sell me on this notion of white men are being systemically, systematically discriminated against in our society because they're white and male. And that is just a bridge too far, Michael. That is nonsense crazy now. <laughs> No, it, it clearly is. It's also one of the things we've tried to emphasize on the show always is being proud to say every day, I am not a victim. And when self-victimization and self-pity have done no good at all for minority communities, they certainly aren't going to do good for a majority community that's still, relative to everybody else, is doing pretty well. Uh, Ruben Navarrete, uh, the, the piece is posted on our website. I was for affirmative action, but now I think it should go away. So what does it mean when it goes away? Uh, we will get to that and more reparations, too, on the Medved Show. My friend Ruben Navarrete, he's the author of a terrific piece, uh, I Was For Affirmative Action, but now I think it should go away. Uh, one of the, the things that I think is, is extraordinary is that if you read the opinion, as you point out in your piece, one of the leading cases now that they're going to be reviewing uh, when the court looks at this issue of, with Harvard and University of North Carolina one of the lead cases was the Bollinger case involving the University of uh, Michigan. And in that case, uh, I know that one of the concurring opinions was by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And she said, surely uh, this is a temporary expedient. And she guessed that 25 years from now, uh, this affirmative action won't be necessary anymore because it will have accomplished its purpose. And it was prophetic because what is this? This is just about 25 years after that case, right? It is. And just I love that you mentioned Justice O'Connor because, you know, I don't like envisioning the history of the Supreme Court if you take out O'Connor. I think she was an incredibly gifted and consequential justice. Uh, I am not bothered at all by the fact that Ronald Reagan said he was going to put a woman on the court, and he did. She was number two in her graduate class at Stanford, and yet she tells stories of trying to get a job in the 1950s where she could not get a job because she was a woman. She was hired merely as a, le a legal secretary, right? She had to fill legal memos out for men, arguably white men, who were not as smart, who didn't do as well in law school. 
And, uh, you know, you're a girl dad. I'm a girl dad. We both have two wonderful daughters each. And it's, it's galling when you think about the Sandra Day O'Connor story. One of the reasons she has always been a tentative yes vote on affirmative action, Michael, I think, is because her life experience taught her that, you know, all things are not equal coming up in the ranks, no matter how much we like to pretend that they are. Yeah, and by the way, that's one of the reasons also when you talk about personal experience. This is, uh, uh, Jewish people have tended to be overwhelmingly liberal in American politics since Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, before that, mm -hmm. Jews were traditionally Republicans. Um, but uh, college quotas, the entire quota system really hurt people. It hurt people that I know. It hurt people in my family, right. uh, not yeah. not and older people because the quotas were taken away uh, by the 1960s. But they used to have literally limits in Ivy League schools yeah. of, uh, and it was about 10%. Right. Beyond 10%, no more Jews. And, uh, <laughs> and again, That's you right. remember that. And you associate that even if the quotas are not meant to hurt anybody, and I think that the quotas that have been placed in schools were not, but now they end up hurting Asians because if yeah. you look at, well, for instance, University of California, Berkeley, you mentioned before, it's one of the most uh, selective of all the public universities. Uh, I believe it's very close to half Asian enrollment, and that's right. because and the voters of California yeah. voted out quotas of any kind, any kind of race-based admissions. That's correct, Michael. And if there are some folks who, if they had their way, would be happy if Berkeley were 70 or 80 percent Asian. Um, I'm not sure I'd like any university to be 80 percent Hispanic, because this isn't just <laughs> a numbers game. If you have, if you have a school that's 80 percent Hispanic, you know, that's not so, so helpful to the Hispanics, because they're not being exposed to African-Americans, Asians, whites, and others. Uh, and so I think I think there is a legitimate uh, reason for Harvard to do business the way it does. You'll you'll recognize that Harvard has won twice already in the federal courts. It won at the district court level and it won at the at the appeal, appeals court level, and now it's been appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The reason it wins is because not just because it's a private school that can do largely what it wants. That's that's not completely true, but it wins because it's very difficult to argue that Harvard is going out of its way to systematically discriminate against Asian-Americans when today 25% of the student body at Harvard is Asian. And so there is a real difference, yeah. I would argue, between quotas that kept out Jews in the 30s implemented by a Harvard president, President Lowell, who was a known anti-Semite, okay, versus what's happening today with Asians. It's not the same thing because nobody is saying Asians are inferior the way they said Jews were inferior. And Jews could point to the fact that, hey, I was kept out of Harvard because there's no Jewish people at Harvard. But it's real hard to make that case when 25 percent of the student body that did get in looks like you. Yeah. And so do you how do you expect them to decide? I mean, obviously, the uh, I, I suspect that Justice Chief Justice Roberts uh, yes. Though again, he wrote he wrote in that in that that one case, the only way to stop uh, discriminating based on race is to yeah. stop discriminating based on race. That it doesn't yeah. matter what your motive is; you can't judge people based on the color of their skin or their ethnic background. Right. So John Roberts is an interesting case. Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, 
he came, he was appointed by the same president and nominated by the same president, Quentin Sam Alito up. Uh, Alito was Princeton undergrad, Yale Law School. But John Roberts is not Sam Alito. Sam Alito, as you know, was uh, part of a group called Concerned Alumni of Princeton, who they couldn't sleep at night because they were concerned that there were too many black and brown kids going to Princeton. Uh, he's much more of an activist in this issue. John Roberts, something interesting happened, as you know, Michael, to Roberts when he became the Chief Justice. And he proved it in the Obamacare decision. He really does pivot much more. He wants to be much more like Tony Kennedy or Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, and if he were just an associate justice like Alito, he might be more in line with the memo that you quoted. I think the new John Roberts as Chief Justice is probably going to try to find a way to preserve some of this, get rid of some of this, maybe say that some of the programs need to be restricted even more. Mm, but I, there might be a compromise in there because the new John Roberts is not interested. He, he really adheres closely to precedent, as you know, and he really well. He's he's also very protective of the. He's very protective of the court. He doesn't want the court yeah, to do much. anything that is. And this very much well, goes I, to the yeah. abortion case, which is also coming very up. Very much. He he wants the court to um, to be conservative in the true sense of the word, which is to be very. Uh, cautious about change, and certainly about any change that isn't based upon the specific written word of the Constitution of the United States or of, of statute law. Um, in, in terms of uh, the the upcoming election, one of the features that all of the polling shows for this uh, midterm election is <laughs> that that the Latino vote is predicted to be split. I mean, down the middle. This is an amazing thing, and it's the kind of thing you've been predicting for a while.